Hello, and welcome to the Restore Body Balance podcast, where we combine psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. I'm Colleen Burns, licensed psychotherapist and founder of Restore Body Balance. I'm Nico Yatanis, co-producer of this podcast, and I'm going to be asking Colleen some questions on today's topic. Today's topic will focus on the correlations between happiness and our physical and mental health. Colleen, there is a growing body of research suggesting that positive emotions can promote physical health and negative emotions can contribute to poor or diminished physical health. Even outside of scientific findings, I recall recently listening to David Dobrik's podcast where he mentioned that when he was in school, he used to think he could will himself to be sick with a cold and actually stay home from school. And now, in his more satisfied day-to-day life, he doesn't find himself sick as often. And I always felt a similar way. Sometimes I felt in school when I got cold, it was when I really needed to have some time off. So that said, is the person who is happy less likely to get sick, develop disease or have a heart attack? Or is the healthy person happy because they are healthy and not stressed over physical health matters? And so I guess the question remains, is there a link between happiness and health? Sure, Nico. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg syndrome, right? And consistent, well-controlled studies indicate that people who are optimistic or have a greater sense of purpose have at least a 20% reduction in developing major illnesses such as heart disease and diabetes, which is probably why there are literally thousands of books out there on happiness. Not to mention, it is a well-known phrase in our very own Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Both Confucius and Socrates implied that happiness and personal growth were a major purpose in life. And even the Dalai Lama references the importance of being happy. But to answer your question, that really goes back to nearly 20 years of my career where I do help people either stop and mitigate their psychological struggles or we look at their negative behavior patterns that keep us stuck or them stuck, stressed and still suffering, thus unhappy. So is being happy just a matter of feeling good? I know I can feel happy when I buy something or buy an experience that'll temporarily make me happy, like a concert for example. But this kind of feels like a trap because being happy short term does not contribute to happiness long term. It's kind of like a vicious cycle. So how do you help people become happier? Well, Nico, I use this phrase every day in my practice, and oftentimes clients will echo it back to me when they fall into the happiness trap, right? Wanting equals suffering is the phrase. It's actually um, from Buddhism. And I heard it all the time when I was traveling both through Nepal and Indonesia. I guess my very own search for happiness. See, we have a very high standard of living in the United States. And I thought hiking through the Himalayas would cure me of all that. And to some degree, it did. It introduced me to mindfulness and meditation which is why we are so anxious all the time and especially now grieving our stay at home and climate of social distancing 
everything we quote unquote use to make us happy has been taken away in a sense, and we are suffering. That's not to say being cut off from our loved ones, friends, careers, modern medicine, and finances is not real suffering. It is, but there's also hope. There is hope. We have an amazing modern society. We can more or less control our worlds from the palm of our hands. We live with cutting-edge medical facilities, food, and items delivered 24/7, superior technological advances, and yet more and more we are dissatisfied with our lives, or as you said, always wanting. TV and media are constantly inundating us with messages where people can fall victim to the comparison games: who is smarter, richer, more famous, more powerful. I guess we are always trying to measure up, but as you said, there is hope. Yes, Nico, there is hope. It's that we are conditioned to focus on what we don't have and not on what we do have, and even then, that too runs its course. We are hardwired for more, quickly becoming dissatisfied with what we have now, or we start to project all the terrible things that could happen in the future, like. Disease, financial loss, and death. So, going back to the pursuit of happiness, what is happiness? In my opinion, it's living a deep, full, and meaningful life, bringing people, places, and things into our lives that are real and truly deep down. We're bringing love into our hearts. People often enter therapy because they are suffering. Trying desperately to control both the world around them and their feelings about the world, so it's that vicious cycle you mentioned. We develop negative reactions to negative feelings. I often state a line out of one of my favorite books, Buddha's Brain, by doctors Hansen and Mendius, and they write: the first darts are thrown at us. The second darts we throw at ourselves. I completely agree with that definition of happiness. But going back to that quote, what exactly does that quote mean? Are we self-sabotaging in a way? Well, the most amazing thing about being human is that we can reflect on our feelings and our place in the world. Getting back to feeling good enough or measuring up, right? I liken it to a horse and rider. I love the relationship I have with my horse when I ride, and now my daughter Addison rides too. But this time, I'm not riding; I'm observing. See, the rider is not just trying to control the horse; it's too powerful. We are guiding it to go in the direction we want it to. In turn, with those thoughts that make us suffer, we are gently. But deliberately trying to guide our mind, and in fact, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology, defined two streams of consciousness. He called them the primary primate mind and the secondary person mind. So, to uncomplicate all of this, we have negative reactions to negative feelings, which leads to more negative emotions. And thus, more frustration from our inner critic. 
So we may not be able to control intrusive thoughts or comments made toward us, aka the first starts, but we can control our reactions to them. Clinically, it's called a reaction formation. And with awareness and practice, we can get better at not throwing those second darts back toward us. That makes sense. Thank you for elaborating on that. That's the vicious cycle, or as you say in your book, prescription for change, going down the rabbit's hole. Exactly. So let's take that horse and rider analogy one step further. You are gently, with the subtlest moves, guiding the horse. It's a relationship of respect. That's the phrase in meditation or yoga practice where they always ask you to have gentle, loving kindness towards yourself. Or when your mind wanders off, we just gently bring it back. We don't want to beat ourselves up for wandering off or going down the rabbit's hole of rumination. In fact, all emotions are okay. Negative emotions are just that but we need to become curious about them. It's a relationship between our emotions and feelings that we need to observe, just like the horse and rider. There's a phrase when riding borrowed from Churchill, keep calm, heels down. And the main reason is that keeping your foot down or heels down helps you not get stuck in the stirrup if you fall off or lose your balance. Quite frankly, being dragged by a horse is very painful. It also balances your weight and makes you a bit more stable. It takes a lot of muscle to keep your heels down. And in this analogy, we are also building this muscle of staying and not running away. It's like muscle memory in a sense. So again, calm our minds and try not to get stuck if we lose our balance. Margie, my daughter's trainer, often tells her, you're not being fair to Duchess Addison. That's the horse she rides. You are in fact telling her two different things. You need to loosen the reins. Tell her where you want her to go. Again, deliberately, but gently, not yanking or pulling. Pulling back on the reins tells her to stop. Yet, you're squeezing with your legs, and that means to tell her to go. So imagine feeling a horse start to really pick up speed, Nico. You naturally want to pull back and hang on with your legs. But oddly, again, we're telling it two different things. And in therapy, we call that ego dystonic, okay? So as humans, we're kind of doing the same thing ruminating and perseverating and that just makes the pain worse we're actually doubling our pain something bad happens and we just keep thinking about it or then we go tell a friend about it well we just keep reliving the pain and we are suffering reliving these hurtful moments or comments or feeling jealous of a life that we see on instagram and then we feel badly and we try to make it better by yearning for more or wanting to feel more fulfilled and of course that cycle starts all over or vice versa we start feeling and then we start thinking that's the feedback loop or cycle but we can stop ourselves we can loosen the reins keep calm and carry on 
So how do we stop this vicious cycle of ruminating or how do we close the loop, so to speak? We need to create a different kind of attitude towards feelings. So rather than seeking to avoid them and in some sort of self-attack, we simply listen to what our feelings are telling us. Then we learn from them and use them to guide us towards a different state of being. So just like my daughter Addison and her horse, like we said last week, I use the acronym in my practice ONE and it's O-N-E, O for observe, observe your thoughts, N for negate, and uh, E to echo. So we observe our feelings, negate the negative belief cycle, and then echo the positive message. This really is why I decided to write my book, because this is also the foundation of cognitive behavior therapy. But I learned it's only possible to perform this task of one in the parasympathetic nervous system. We are not amenable to anything new in fight or flight. So, i.e., the phrase, keep calm, carry on. We need to be able to think clearly, and we can't in fight or flight. And guess what? We're also not happy in fight or flight. We are panicked, preparing for danger, and suffering. So does this mean we just have to start thinking we are happy, or try and just feel happy? Well, yeah, Nico, in some sense, yes. We now have clinical terms for my horse analogy. So during my mind-body medicine training at the Benson Henry Institute at the Massachusetts General Hospital, doctors called it either running in the bottom-up network or using our top-down processing. Actually, with fMRI chambers and more advanced technological equipment, we can actually see this in action. We can see the brain when we are running in the bottom-up network of fight or flight or using that wonderful top-down processing when we are back in the parasympathetic nervous system and being in control. And guess what? We want to be in top-down, but most of us are in bottom-up. And we need to keep order and maintain calm. We can do it. And as a matter of fact, what I also learned is not only can we do it, but we can grow this top-down network and prune back, as we like to say, or mitigate the response of that bottom-up network of fight-or-flight. You know I love neuroscience, Nico, so I'm going to geek out for one minute. Remember, we said this in our last podcast, the amygdala, that almond-shaped little nugget in the middle of our brain, decides if we are stressed. It is like the smoke detector in your home, and it doesn't know if you've burned the toast or if your house is on fire. Then the basal ganglion will store what to respond to. It connects the two amygdalae. And guess what? It's actually learning. So, you know, we have to look at the amygdala making this pattern of perception within 20 milliseconds. We just go to the knee-jerk quick response of fight or flight to save our lives. And this includes thinking of a solution. But 
the solution is only what we have taught it, right? So we can quiet the basal ganglion, which connects the two amygdalae. And we can say, like my analogy, okay, the fire department came, it's giving the all clear, it's safe to go back into the building. Again, we keep calm, carry on. So here is the key. We need to get very clear on what we respond to. And we train our brain that way. And just like anything else, like running a marathon or, you know, starting a new habit, it's over time easier and easier and easier for you to do things that you repeat or habituate. So in this case, we want to make it easier to stay and not to respond to those intrusive thoughts. That's very important. Living in our current world of instant gratification and constantly wanting more, I get why it's so hard to be happy. We are never truly satisfied. We could have more to feel better. You are saying we need to tell ourselves that we are okay to begin with, which is so true. No wonder we spend so much time worrying about what other people think of us, comparing ourselves to the rest of society, and looking for ways to improve, like being more fit, more successful, having more likes. <laughs> That's right, Nico. And this is where we are simply conjuring up a fantasy image of the person we would ideally like to be. And then we compare ourselves to that. Get more, get better. Historically, think about it. We um, are sort of designed to do this. The better your shelter, the safer you are. Or landing a better job, you have more money and maybe more security. We liken a better body with more love or seeking a better partner. And then, of course, guess what? We do end up getting it, and then we end up wanting more. We are kind of hardwired to never be satisfied. Exactly. And Oprah said a quote that kind of stuck with me relating to this, and it says, quote, Be thankful for what you have. You'll end up having more. If you concentrate on what you don't have, you'll never, ever have enough. No wonder we humans find it hard to be happy. So, that said, what exactly is happiness then? Well, I guess the most common way to explain it is feeling good, pleasure and gratification. But guess what? Again, it also involves pain, loss, disappointment, failure, and death. We also experience these painful thoughts and feelings. It's just not about pleasure. We cannot avoid them, but rather just make room for them. There is great advice on how to improve your life. Exercise more, get out in nature, seek a fulfilling career or relationship, go volunteer. And yes, these activities can be deeply satisfying, but not if we're using them to escape unpleasant thoughts and feelings. We do them because they are truly meaningful and deep down they matter to us. They cannot be motivated by avoidance. We suffer. We experience loss and pain. It's just a fact of life. But in time, with practice, we learn to, again, just make room for these unpleasant feelings. And over time, they take less of a hold on us. 
We don't see them as dangerous, aka going back into fight or flight. Again, we're just trying to stay alive. Your body is not necessarily working against you, and they then become a part of us by making room for them, and then we don't focus on them. And again, a less of a hold we have on them. But ruminating or going down the rabbit's hole is where we perpetuate our suffering. Thus, we're unhappy. In some cases, like my acronym of one, we also need to reframe the situation, negate the feelings that are not probable, or perform that cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation that I learned at the Benson Henry Institute. It is scientifically proven to combat the stress response. We are safe and we are relaxed, and therefore inherently happier. But as you said in a past episode, the brain is drawn to bad news. So how do we retrain our brains, or guide the horse, as you said earlier? We learn how to experience these thoughts and feelings in a new way. Then that dramatically decreases or reduces their impact on us. This is a major undertaking, Nico. It's hard, which is why I have my patients go through some. Sort of a program, in a sense. We will fail. We will fall. We might get dragged by the horse, which is why we have somebody as a support network, and it makes us accountable. Some of these going down the rabbit's holes are probably been around since adolescence, when a lot of our identity is being developed. So we are up against twenty. Sometimes more years of neural pathways that we've created to essentially save our lives, or so we thought. They were keeping us from danger or those bad feelings. And if we learn to see the thoughts and the feelings in a new way, over and over and over, we build up that layer of top-down processing, or even create a new pathway. And that is evidence-based and scientifically proven, Nico. And that's neuroplasticity, and it's real. Can you say more about this scientific strategy of training our brain? Yes. Remember last week when you said the phrase、uh, "your Pavlov to your phone"? We get better and more efficient to what we pay attention to or tend to, in a way. We can make a trigger reward thicker by buying a new gadget. Eating the cookie, and the trigger of that danger just makes that bottom-up network thicker. That did not feel good, so avoid it. Avoid physical or mental pain. That's bottom-up processing. We don't want to necessarily be in pain and suffering, right? And so again, the more we recapitulate that habit, that's just building that neural network thicker and thicker and thicker, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger, and we suffer. We want the top-down network, okay, where we're calm. Safe and relaxed, and dare I say, happy. And this is where I learned at the Benson Henry Institute, we can grow a suit of armor in a way. So in my program, everything we do is building the top-down network, which is why it's programmatic in a sense. You need to 
look at what we're doing day in and day out and do it day in and day out. So remember, the stress response is triggered by that bottom up network. Okay. If we maybe gave one more interesting analogy, you might appreciate this. Once we become aware of being in fight or flight through some training, the awareness can be calmed down by training our brains to get back to calm. Training our brains back to what truly feels safe. When we're in rest and relax, rest and restore, rest and digest, rest and reproduce, all of those wonderful things we need to function properly and optimally as a human being, we feel safe and therefore we're happier. So we need to look at how we get there. And when we start experiencing this state of the parasympathetic nervous system of being safe, we'll naturally go toward it. And again, we bring in experiences of positivity and safety. Once we've practiced the aforementioned, then we can look at what true happiness is. They use the analogy in the Benson Henry Institute of also, once you're in that wonderful state of rest and relax, you get the opportunity to have like a drop down box. That goes back to that basal ganglia that I talked about. It's responsible for learning and keeping it, you know, uh, ready for action. But if the drop down box alongside of the brain has other things we can go to besides fight or flight, eat the cookie, panic, then we give the brain a choice. Amy Armstrong at Yale University was the first person to actually develop an image of the brain network. So as I say in my book, Prescription for Change, we now have a roadmap to the brain. We just need to get on the right road. And looking at a drop-down box of choice gives us ways to cope or respond. So maybe the drop-down box has things like one, let's just observe what's going on. Let's negate negative feelings and let's echo the positive, right? Sometimes when we feel bad, the reappraisal could be, it's not as bad as it could be. And the appreciation is, yes, you lost something, but then we learn to appreciate what we do have. And again, this all came out of positive psychology and neuroscience. I know it sounds complicated, but it's really not. It's just about awareness. We simply just need to learn to slow down, but we are moving and thus responding to thoughts and feelings at the speed of light. But by learning to pause and stay present, it's really essentially the only way to truly be happy, learning to enjoy what we have in the moment, because that's the only thing that is truly real. Right. Like they say, Colleen, quote, the past is history and the future is a mystery. Or I've heard it in one of my favorite songs, too, that says the past is in the rare view and the future holds no weight. I appreciate the idea of the drop down box or the element of choice, but how do we create it? And how do we get or stay in this top-down network? The top-down network stores all forms of top-down processing. So that's how it gets thicker and that's how we grow it. It's our navigational tool and it's called adaptation. And this is where 
meditation and mindfulness all come in. The brain has to do what the mind tells it. That's powerful. So I'm going to say it again. The brain has to do what the mind tells it. So it's all about our belief systems, okay, that are already intact or ones we need to change, like we said earlier, in terms of what we look like, what we need, or what we want more of. And we can only see this when we slow down and we learn to hear ourselves and we slow down enough to see what do I really want to attend to? We look, listen, and feel. It's not thinking. And in the beginning, it's not fun. It's almost like playing a musical instrument. It's work. It's learning. But once you build the skills, it's beautiful. That, again, is neuroplasticity. But you cannot stop. It's why I have a program. We use your lifestyle to create changes that stick. Which is also why I say I combine psychology, biology, and neurology. I think I understand. With the instrument analogy, you learn the notes, the keys, and then put together a song. But you need to practice it every day. And if you stop, you need to refresh and remember, just like learning a language. And it slowly comes back. Exactly. And if we stop using that language, we need to be around people or use it more. And suddenly we're speaking French again. So it all goes back to mindfulness and meditation and what we give in that drop down box. So I say in my book, give yourself a chance by giving yourself choice. And that's my program. We are so used to the fast-paced world that we're just clicking and going. But we really have to look at what are we clicking or choosing? First, we create the choices of the drop-down box. And then, through additional use of meditation and mindfulness, we can pause to actually see and make the desired choice. Not the fight-or-flight choice that we've taught it or the quick fix. Oh, the quick fix, like your analogy with craving fat and sugar when we are stressed. Then we regret it. It was a quick fix we had available and tended to over and over again. Then we feel badly or guilty and the quick fix is to make the pain go away and we do it all over again. It is temporarily symptom relief, as you often say. Yes, you're exactly right, Nico. Well put. But we can get used to quieting our mind, believe it or not, with meditation and mindfulness. We look, listen, and feel. It's sustained attention. It's sitting with our feelings, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But then we can focus on peace or joy, for example. If you focus on a quality, you believe it. So you can say a word, a phrase, or even have an image in mind. This is very powerful when it comes to meditation and mindfulness. When your mind wanders, you just gently bring it back and you learn to regulate your attention and focus on yourself or yourself as you desire. Finding positivity, reappraisal of an uncomfortable feeling, and etc. You mentioned focusing on what you desire. 
Is that not going back to the habit loop or wanting equal suffering, desiring more, a better body, a better job, etc.? Well, let's say, for example, you need to lose weight for health reasons, or need to quit a drug, or let's even take smoking. We can train our brain to reappraise the quick fix, or what we've taught ourselves is the relief of the suffering. So let's say you're a smoker, and when you're stressed, you smoke. By the way, to give credit where credit is due, this is the work of Dr. Judson Brewer. He did a clinical trial, in a sense, where he allowed a group of smokers wanting to quit smoking cigarettes to actually smoke, but they smoked in. You ready for this? The parasympathetic nervous system. Allow me to explain again. As I've stated, we are not amenable to change in fight or flight. Anything new is off the table. So we will stay in the same job, apply the same, you know, taught symptom relief like smoking to relieve stress when we're in fight or flight. That is the sympathetic nervous system. But when we are in rest and relax, or the parasympathetic nervous system, we can actually hear change, and that's where we need the drop-down box. So, in Dr. Brewer's study, he first teaches mindfulness and meditation to get the smokers in the rest and relax state of mind. He then allows them to smoke. And walks them through what smoking really does. He did this via an app that was created by the help of MIT students here at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology. So they all did a little meditation and mindfulness, got into the parasympathetic nervous system, and then while they were outside smoking, they were asked to swipe through a list of questions. That exposed what they had correlated as negative consequences of smoking. Again, this is very important. They could hear them now, as opposed to just smoking away. So they answered the questions in a multiple choice form, like, for example, "Why did you want to quit?" Now remember. Our top-down network is being activated, right? Because we had the meditation, and so the quick fix of the nicotine was less and less satiating. So, yeah, of course, initially the receptor site got its nicotine; those little dendrites calm down. But then, what? Really, after one or two puffs, we're not really getting any secondary gain or secondary hits of the nicotine. So, what he would do then? Is again staying in that parasympathetic nervous system where we are amenable to change. He would ask them questions like, "Are there health consequences to smoking, like lung cancer?、Uh, do you smell like an ashtray when you go back in the building?" And he prompted them to go through these negatives. And guess what? The brain hears this too, and again, only in the rest. And relaxation of the parasympathetic nervous system. So over time, the reward is not as rewarding. The association was no longer have the cigarette when I'm stressed, 
but now I can access the drop-down box of what else I can do when I'm stressed. Dr. Brewer guided them to focus on what he had taught them as true relief. Because after the cigarette, just like you mentioned, eating fat and sugar, we regret, right? So he teaches them a pleasant thought, a wonderful image, some deep breathing, and that all gets us into that safe, relaxed zone that does in fact feel good. Because the brain not only is drawn towards bad news, it's also constantly seeking a better life. So when we are not stressed or in fight or flight, guess what? The pain stops, the suffering stops. And now we have it available to them as true relief. And that is meditating and that is experiencing. When we meditate, we're really truly experiencing. And you start to build that top-down part of the brain. That's so interesting. And Dr. Brewer's study was interesting as well. It actually made me think of a PSA that we had to watch in school. It's a Thai PSA. It's called Smoking Kid for anyone who wants to look it up. And it is this kid that goes up to people who are smoking and he asks them for a cigarette. And the person smoking tells the kid why it's a bad idea to smoke. And then at the end of that, he hands them a note that says, you worry about me, but why not about yourself? So it creates that dissonance and then they have to, they start to consider quitting smoking. So you really can rebuild your brain, right? You're correct. And that's what the phrase is. Exactly. You get the brain you build. So each time we perform, let's say my one or give cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation, we get what we call a dose response, right? So in medicine, for example, you dose somebody medication and you get a response. So that's building that top down network. So you look at activity, for example, that doesn't require thinking like meditation, mindfulness, giving somebody a compliment breathing, my wonderful 478 breath by Dr. Weil that I seem to mention every week, um, you, you actually can edit the distortion. So you have a chance to examine the perceived threat. And then we name the threat. When we fall victim to that bottom-up network, for most of us, we are just making that thicker and stronger. And again, don't forget, we have been thinking and behaving this way for years. And those ants, like I heard them called, automatic negative thoughts, are basically having fewer and fewer places to go. So we need to experience them in a new way. And here, experience is actually the teacher. Can you say more about that? Well, let's go back to that comparison game we mentioned in the beginning. I need not tell you how destructive Facebook, Instagram, and really all of our social media can be. Look at me, I'm living this amazing life. Or heaven forbid with our COVID-19 crisis, it's basically kicking in this, I can't get what I want of the child ego state. Life is stressful, but it always has been. From moving across the plains, 
by horse and carriage, forging the land, growing an industrialized city, or even go across the world to building pyramids or, you know, all of our wonderful coliseums in Rome. It's built on pain and suffering. Death is inevitable. It's pain and suffering. But let's look at the way life is supposed to be in terms of delivering happiness, right? As opposed to setting ourselves up for disappointment. Looking at our mental and our physical ailments, disease, work stress, financial and family stress, and that's all going to happen. So really, in fact, true happiness is rare. So we need to look for it, but not on social media. <laughs> it portrays that everyone else is having such a great time and not us. And you guessed it, this belief creates more unhappiness and we suffer. So we simply go back to what we are experiencing. We're not trying to get rid of negative feelings, but we want to reappraise them. Remember, when we let a thought or feeling come up and just sit with it, we're not trying to make it good, like I want more of that, or bad, that stinks, let's stay away from that, and therefore I need to remember it and store it, bottom-up network. Uh, we don't want to re-experience these things again. And we also don't want to be gluttonous and keep going towards the things that actually do feel good because, again, the brain also is always seeking a better life. So what we do is we look at the brain and try to keep the homeostasis in a way. And that's where antidoting the stress with positive feelings and experiences comes into play. We have even discussed this before, the I don't feel good, make it better. You mentioned how we are constantly finding ways to feel better by overthinking, overeating, shopping, drinking, and even simple distractions like TikTok, for example. So this can contribute to our unhappiness. How do we stop? Again, by neutralizing the feeling or antidoting the stress. It's not the judgment of whether it's good or bad or I feel good or I feel bad. We simply sit with it. Then sometimes when needed, we reappraise it to then experience it in a new way. It might not be pleasant, but the key is we need to experience it again in a new way that we've discovered. And it's all easier said and done when we're meeting with a coach or a therapist or going through my program, for example. You know, really, that's where therapy helps us and keeps us accountable. We look at our distortions, we look at our sort of, you know, when they say pull the thread, we start repeating the same thing over and over and over again, going back to that wanting equals suffering. So with Prescription for Change, for example, uh, there's a journal on the back of the book and that prompts you to perform certain exercises that build that top-down network every day and every night. And as a matter of fact, I even include if you've had any bonus times. Yes. If I remember correctly, you call it bookending your day. This is also where I see apps like Calm that will check in with you during the day. Can you imagine if all of our friends on Facebook and Instagram asked us to recall a positive moment? 
or check in on us during the day instead of posting about how they are doing? Yes, that would be wonderful, Nico. And you know, some people are doing better on social media, right? Again, we need to draw people, places, and things into our life that feeds us emotionally and physically. Right. I think we call it an Instagram cleanse. <laughs> right. I know my last post for asking folks was to bring in the five senses. So I said, what did you hear, uh, see, smell, touch, or taste that day? And then you re-experience them. And re-experiencing something positive is real and rewarding. As Peg Bame says at the Benson Henry Institute, bathe the brain in positive emotions and feelings. And this is very important upon going to bed or waking up. It not only puts us to bed in a good mood for restorative sleep, but it also helps us to wake up and set our intention for the day. Experience is the teacher. Again, we have not lost control over our feelings, okay? It's the first darts, right? Somebody saying a hurtful comment, we seeing something on social media that kicks up something inside of us, jealousy. That's the bad news. Those are the first darts. The good news is that we now know we have a great deal of control over our actions. And taking this action can create a more meaningful life, thus we are happier. And as with everything, it takes practice to achieve true happiness. Which is why we hear so much about meditation and mindfulness as a practice. You mentioned tagging this practice onto something we do each day. I know I used the term Pavlov for the last podcast. I am truly getting the picture now. As we experience something and focus on staying present in the moment, we can relive these happy feelings again and again, and simply by not running down the rabbit's hole with negative thoughts and feelings. We do not re-experience unpleasant feelings over and over. And the idea behind mindfulness is to practice this skill, building the top-down network. Exactly. We just need education and our brave new world that it's a process and we need to be mindful to what we are attending to. Don't forget the brain is always listening. Your mind is like a flashlight. So just for a second, close your eyes. Picture being in the dark, true darkness. You cannot see anything. And then you're handed a flashlight. And wow, you can see, but you can only see where you point the flashlight. We just need practice and guidance on how and where we shine it. So in summation, as to where we start it, when we are less stressed, we emotionally feel better and happier. And less stress is also associated with fewer physical ailments like heart disease, diabetes, and inflammation. So in my opinion, being happier is linked to being healthier. And just similar to the flashlight analogy, if you look on your phone in the settings, you can see how much time you spend on certain apps and maybe it's where you point the flashlight, but where you spend your time on things like even throughout your day, even beyond the phone. So thank you, Colleen. You have shared a wonderful approach to being present and being happy. Self-help books are everywhere, but we learned that there is a method to the madness. 
and you also helped us to understand that it's not our fault. Educating our listeners on an exciting way to either use your program or the plethora of happier books out there. So thank you for listening to the Restore Body Balance podcast. If you have any questions, you can visit us on the web at www.restorebodybalance.com. We're also available on YouTube and we post a video usually every other Thursday. We will see you next week.